Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. So glad that you've uh, wandered in today. Although we don't really believe you wandered in, we believe that God has brought you here for this moment in time uh, to hear His Word, receive His Word. Uh, We're a church who believes fully embracing the Spirit of God, the Word of God, 100% of both. And so this morning, we're going to look at the book of Ezra together. We're continuing the book of Ezra, um, Old Testament, go to the Psalms, hang a left, and you'll eventually find Ezra down there. How, How many of you still have landlines in your home? Anyone? Wow, that's amazing. I, I'm just so shocked uh, that anybody has a landline. Um, my phone went out the other day. Anybody have AT&T? Um, and uh, they were telling me, if you have an emergency, use a landline. I'm like, where, where am I going to find one of those? Then I realized the church has one. Well, we still have a landline, so I'd have to drive from my house to the church. I think I could get to the hospital quicker, but... Uh, Here's one of my concerns. Uh, Everybody has cell phones in their hands. I'm thinking some of you are fact-checking me as I preach. Uh, Immediately after Sunday service last week, um, some of you are so concerned. I love it when this happens. Hold on. I can fix this. Don't worry. I can make this go away. I think. Yes. Y'all were so concerned about this poor French guy who built the tower that was 24 feet tall, 28 feet tall, and got his, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records did not receive um, his, his, because he used different matchsticks. Well, I want you to know that by the end of the service, some of you had checked, and the Guinness Book of World Records had reversed their decision to give him the world record. So, viva la France. Um, <laughs> that has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just wanted to, you know, correct, correct. Plus, it would have ruined my illustration if they had given him credit about and, comp- and compromised, which they did. Um, Anyway, uh, this morning we're going to continue our study of Ezra. Now, if you, again, if you're new, I'm not going to go back and review the whole thing because it would take too long, but uh, you, you have to know where we are in history in order to understand what's going on. The nation of Judah, the southern two tribes, have fallen to Babylon. They've been taken into captivity. It happened in 586 B.C. They get carried off into captivity. Temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. The judgment of God came on the nation after years and years and years of prophets and others telling them, repent, turn back to God, or he will judge you. Eventually, his judgment does come. They're carried off into captivity, and uh, the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians. The Persians have a much more gracious view of letting people occupy the land, so they're allowing some of the um, Jews to go back to their homeland 
they've been allowed to rebuild the temple, uh, Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah, and um, they, they, they rebuild the temple. It's been 70 years since they're carried off into captivity until the temple is rebuilt. And in the book of Ezra, the first six chapters, we see all that takes place in the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of the sacrificial system. Now we're going to come to Ezra actually coming on the scene. The person whose name is the name of this book hasn't even appeared yet until chapter 7. And one of the things to note, and you don't really know this because we're not histories of ancient cultures very much, but between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 is a 57 to 58 year gap. So the temple is reinstituted. The, the Passover, or they celebrate, and they um, start sacrificing again. And we have no idea what happens in this 57, 58 year period. Does a nation move more toward God? Do they move more away toward God? Uh, we have some idea, but we, we don't know exactly what happens between chapter 6 and chapter 7 when Ezra is going to step on the scene. So today we're going to look at chapter 7 and kind of see some things about um, the Word of God and the people of God. And the Word of God and how, what God has called us to do and how we walk in what God has called us to do. I, to my detriment at times, um, will fall down the rabbit hole known as YouTube. And um, I'll start watching uh, a lot of like people being interviewed and different podcasts that I, I enjoy seeing how people talk and live. And one of the things I've noticed, though, is if you, um, if you walk, watch almost any talk show and you see what's going on on the talk show, you, you have these guys, um, by the way, all late night talk shows are male. Um, but I was neither here nor there for our liberal society, but I find it fascinating. Anyway, they interview people, and generally they say, hey, great job, and I heard this happen in your life, and you've overcome this, and usually the person will say something like this, yes, I overcame, I did this, I chose this movie, I made this money, I met these people, I did this or I'm walking out my truth, or uh, I'm choosing what I do. And everything seems to come back on them, where they take credit for whatever is happening in their life. Very seldom do you, you see someone say, you know what, this has nothing to do with me. I just found favor. I was just at the right place at the right time, and someone looked at me and said, you can do this, and here I am. I'm not that talented. I'm not that bright. I'm not that great. Humility is a hard characteristic to come by, especially when you're on a talk show. You've made it that far. Throughout Ezra chapter 7 and chapter 8, you will see this phrase, 
over and over again, which says, the hand of my God was on me. The gracious hand of God was on me. The good hand of God was on me. Six times in these two chapters, we're only looking at seven today, but we'll see it three times in chapter seven, three times in chapter eight, where the hand of God was on Ezra to lead him to do what could not be done in and of himself. So today we want to kind of walk through this together to see how do we walk out the hand of God on our lives. Because here's what I believe, and I'm just showing you my hand, so to speak, from the very start of this sermon. I believe the hand of God is on everybody in this room. I believe you are God's child. I believe you are chosen. I believe you have a purpose. I believe you have a destiny. I believe the very presence of God indwells and infills you. And yes, you've done a number of things over the years to screw up your life. It happens. We do it. We sin. We stumble. We fall. But that, to me, does not negate the gracious hand of God at work in your life. If you'll but look and see and receive and walk it out. That's the premise for this morning. So don't you want to walk out the destiny of God for your life? Wouldn't you like to see the gracious hand of God doing things in a way that goes beyond your ability to say, it's all about me. I'm the one who did this. And instead say, no, this is God's work in my life. So here we go. The first thing to do is to both understand and accept that, <laughs> I, I hate to use this, you're on a mission from God. Um, that's an old reference for, I mean, really old for some of you. I'm on a mission from God. Accept the mission. Accept the mission that God has for your life. Let's look at these verses. I'm in chapter 7. I'm going to kind of unfold almost all the verses. There's a letter from Artaxerxes in the middle that's going to give Ezra some things. And I'm not going to read every single part of it. You can read all of chapter 7, but we're going to read most of it. So here's how chapter 7 starts. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, and then dot, 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 because I didn't know if I could read all the names correctly, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, came up from Babylon. Now, here's what's important to know about this. Not every name is in this genealogy that goes, excuse me for one second. Pray that I don't cough the whole service. So just take a second. Pray for the pastor Bart doesn't cough the whole service. <clears throat> Ezra traces his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the high priest. He is in this line. He's, he's not a nobody, in other words. He's got a destiny that was sort of birthed for him. And he can go back and see. It goes on and says, he was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked. Here's this phrase. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. 
But goes on, it says, some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon in the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Pretty incredible how it gives such specific directions, right? For the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now, think about this. We have 70 years when the nation is carried off into captivity. We have another 50-something years between the building of the temple and when Ezra starts to return. Quick math, 125 years. 125 years. Ezra is born and raised in captivity, Babylon, in exile. As far as we know, he's never been back to Jerusalem. He's never visited because if you look at the dates, it's like a four-month journey. It's not like, oh, I think I'll take a hike over to Babylon today or back to Israel or back to Jerusalem. The time frame it would take to travel back is pretty extensive, especially with all he's carrying. So he's probably never been. Now, he is a priest. He's a well-versed priest. He's a priest who understands the Word of God. Uh, he, he, he can teach the Word of God. He still traces his line back to Aaron. But this mission that he's been asked to go on, to go teach the law, go reinstitute the commands of the Lord, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to leave the only home you've ever known, the people that are there, because not everybody's going to go back. You know what I mean? Some people are going to choose to stay in Babylon. Some of his Jewish, and if you want to read more about the whole Jewish uh, kind of how spread out they were and how critical they were throughout the land of Babylon at the time, go read that book of Esther. You can kind of see the spread outness of them, and then you can read the book of Nehemiah. They all kind of give a picture of the land and the people during this time. So first thing, you've got you to say, yes, God has called me to do this, and I choose to walk it out. I accept this call. Now, some of you may be here today saying, you know, if God ever did call me, I'd accept it. I would do whatever he called me to do. And I want to say, really? Because the word of God is clear about some of the things that God has called us to do. The word is clear that Jesus has commissioned us to go and to make disciples. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. And you're like, well, I'll never go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost. No, no, no. Think in your area. Jerusalem, what is around? We talked about this in January. Receiving the word of God and discipling your sphere of influence. The people that are around you. Your Jerusalem, your harvest field. Then Judea. Then Samaria. I mean, think of it like the state of Alabama, the country of the U.S., the, and then the world. But in any case, start where you are. Accept the mission that God has for you. And every single one of us, I think, has a mission field. Maybe you, you're, you're a homeschooling mother, and you have your kids at home, and that's your, disciple them. Disciple your harvest field. 
Whatever it might be, it's your workplace, your school, or your college, or uh, the people God has placed under your care, husbands and wives and relatives. I mean, you think, you, you might want to go home at some point and just write down, this is my sphere of influence. These are the people God has entrusted to my care. Begin to pray over them. Begin to ask for opportunities to minister to them. But the first thing you have to do to really get moving in the destiny that God has for each and every one of us, I think, is to accept the mission. Ezra may have been a little bigger than ours, but he received it and chose to walk in it and to go out in it. It says goes on and says, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Now notice, he's, he's devoted himself to this, but he's never been there. He's got a mission, a call on his life to a place he's never even been, but he's been getting ready. He's been preparing for what God has for him for when that, when that day comes. He has a threefold task that he's given. If you read these verses, he's going to be given the task, the mission, so to speak, of assessing the spiritual state of the people in Jerusalem and Judea, of carrying the gifts of gold and silver from the king, Artaxerxes, who blesses him. We're going to look at that in a second. To the temple in Jerusalem to rebuild it, to restock it, so to speak, because it had been totally ravaged. And opening the word of God to the people of God. That's kind of his threefold mission that he's been called on to accept. And he's been getting ready for this because he's devoted himself to the study and observance of the law and the teaching. Ezra didn't just fall out of the sky into Jerusalem. He had spent his life getting ready for what he was called on to do. He had not only studied, but what else did he do? He observed it. He walked it out. And then he was teaching it to others. By the way, this is not a bad pattern. This is not a bad pattern to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the word of God try to gain an understanding of it, then I'm going to walk it out in my own personal life. I'm going to try and do it by the power of the Spirit. By the way, you can't do it without the power of the Spirit. We'll look at that in just a second. But by the power of the Spirit, I choose to walk it out. And then I'm going to teach others. I'm going to bring others. That is, by the way, one of the models of disciple-making. Studying the Word of God, knowing what it is, having somebody pour into your life maybe even to teach it to you doing it, and then handing it off to others. It says in the book of James, the New Testament, give you a picture of kind of the same idea. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but what? Hello? But doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Hearing the word of God and doing it. By the way, Jesus, in the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I've, I've used this song before. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. 
And the rain's Rains come down and the floods come up. Rains come down and the floods come up. Rains come down and the floods come up. At the house on the rock. So build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. So build your house on the Lord. Great song. It's a little short of the truth. You're just like, well, wait a minute. We do build our house on the rock that is Jesus. Yes, but Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are these. He who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. It is not simply hearing Jesus or hearing about Jesus or hearing his words to accept the mission of the Lord is to hear the words of the Lord and then to put them into practice, to do them. Jesus doesn't just say, just hear my words and you'll be like a house built on the rock. I, I, I want us to, I'm not underselling hearing the words of Jesus or building our house on the rock that's Jesus. But again, I, I do want us to step out into this and say, look, I need to hear the words, observe them, and teach them. In Nehemiah 8.8, 8, by the way, if you want to skip over at some point, read Nehemiah. Nehemiah occurs sometime after Ezra goes back. Ezra is reinstituting the law. Nehemiah is going to come a decade or so later, rebuild the walls. Ezra is on the scene. He is in chapter 8, reading the word of God, chapter 8 and chapter 9, long chapters, but about Ezra standing there, reading the word of God day and night, to the people of God. They read, this is Ezra reading to the people once he's gotten back. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving meaning so that. That's new. So that we have a new computer too. I'll just give you the kind of update. We're, we're experimenting. Give us a little grace. We'll get it all figured out. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. We need to receive the message. And James, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2 2. And it goes on, it says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. I, I really think this hearing the word of God, studying the word of God, observing the word of God, and teaching the word of God is a pattern that we need to walk out more in our lives. Again, I've, there's a lot of new people here at Fullness, so I'm, I'm repeating a couple of things, but I think they're critical to who we are as a church and what, we're, what we believe. So the world's model of telling you to do the mission, do your purpose, do your destiny. It begins with this pattern, which is predict what the future holds and then plan, plan to meet your prediction, right? I mean, I, I know some of you are in corporate worlds where they ask you to get a vision and then to plan to get your, meet your vision and to step out and, and to, to, to really accomplish the vision, you got to plan, and you got to plan in these incremental steps to get you to the vision. Now, what is the flaw in this? Anyone? You can't predict the future. The flaw in this plan is you've got a plan based on a prediction 
that you don't know if it's going to come right or not. Right? Now, I'm not saying don't work. But it's just the world's model that everything is based. But you know what the problem is? The prediction can change in an instant. In an instant, things can happen. I mean, I can look back over my life, which is a little longer now. But I can see instances in my life where no one saw 9-11 coming. No one. And everything changed on that day. What happened? Every prediction was now moot. Therefore, every plan was now gone. I mean, there are times like this in history, and you, you don't know when you leave this place what's going to happen to you. What's going to happen in your world? And so if you're predicting and then planning, again, you understand, right? Here's, I think this is a better model, which is God's model. And again, it, it's not a lazy, laissez-faire kind of, oh, whatever happens, happens. It's this, prepare, get ready, get your heart ready, read the Word of God, observe the Word of God, teach the Word of God. You don't know what God is calling you to do, but Prepare so that when God moves, you can participate with him in his purposes. Get after it. The illustration I've used for many years is the illustration of a surfer who, who, who paddles out to meet the waves. He doesn't plan the waves. He's kind of like looking at him and saying, is this the one I want to ride? Or, oh, by the way, I don't surf. Uh, I've just seen surfing videos in that YouTube rabbit hole that I've fallen into. It's amazing to me. you think growing up in Miami, I would have learned to surf, but I didn't. Don't judge me. Um, anyway, they paddle. I've seen guys surf. They paddle out, and they just sit on the board, and they wait for the wave. They didn't do anything to make the wave happen. They're not even sure when it's coming. Sometimes they predicted something, but they're ready. And when the wave comes, they ride it. I think there's an element, and again, this is not saying don't work, be lazy. That I'm, I'm, look, we're so far from that ditch. But rather, prepare. That's your work. Get ready. Hear from God. Pray. Put yourself in the body of Christ. Seek after God in his plans and his purposes so that what he desires for your life can be accomplished. When God moves, when God calls, then jump on the wave. Jump on the board. Go. Ride with him. Why, why do you think, I'm going to preaching now, give me one second, I'll, I'll be back. Why do you think we make it a big deal to say, get out of debt? Any thoughts? Why do we say, hey, you know, God says, let no debt remain except the debt to love one another. I mean, this isn't the word of God, but why do you think it's a big deal? Well, one of the reasons I think it's a big deal is this. What if God said do this and you can't because you're so in debt? You can't move. Because you've sold your future for your couch or your furniture or your car or whatever else. So you're not really prepared. What if Ezra had said, you know, I'd really like to go, but I got this mortgage. I can't sell my house. I got to pay off this chariot. I bought and the horses to drag it and I, 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 so I can't, I can't, I know I'm making fun, but listen, pre preparation is getting ready for whatever God has for you in the future. 
And that's one of the reasons, if we look at the principles of God, they're not just law for you. They're like, I want to be ready for what God has for my life. I have two other points. Second is walk out the favor of God in your life. Accept the mission and then walk out the favor. And you say, well, you know, Pastor Bard, I don't really think I have much further. Again, I tried to make it clear to you earlier that I think we all have, at some level, the favor of God at work in our lives. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord as God was on him. Now, here's, here's what some people get caught up in and saying, you know what? Ezra had the favor of the king. Do you hear me just for a second? He had the favor of the king. He gave him, I, this is not bolded in your Bible, so you might read over it, not really seeing the part I want to emphasize. The king gave, God, gave Ezra favor because God had given Ezra favor. Right? The king's favor was, the king is just a king. I mean, he's a powerful king. He's a rich king. He's a, he's a wealthy king. But the favor that came is not the favor of the king, but rather the favor of God on Ezra's life that had him walk out this favor. He goes on and says, the king does. This is a letter from Artaxerxes. says, now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you may go. And then he decrees five things in this passage for them to do, for Ezra to do. And some of them I kind of summarized earlier, but to investigate the spiritual state of things in Israel. He was going to uh, give them money to do what they needed to do. Uh, he is commanding other provinces in his care past the river, uh, meaning on the other side from Babylon, the Tigris and Euphrates, on the other side of the river, any of them to help financially, that uh, no temple official priest or servant was to be taxed once Ezra gets back, and for Ezra to set up a judicial system to administer the law of God. This is an incredible letter of power that Artaxerxes gives Ezra, this priest, who had already found favor, but the favor he found was based on God at work in his life. Again, I think accepting the mission, studying the word, doing the word, teaching the word, this is, this is my contention, and this is as close to the prosperity doctrine as I'm going to step. But it's this. If you hear the word of God and do the word of God, and share the word of God, no matter where you are, I believe there's a, a favor of God that is on you. Now, you may not be able to, um, you may say, well, I'm not getting rich. Well, who cares? That's not what God has called you to do or be to be rich. God has called you to carry out his purpose. His favor is based on his plan. I was talking to my son the other day, and his son, my grandson, said to him something like, Dad, you broke a promise. And Jared's like, what? I mean, this is a conversation going on between us. Jared's like, I don't think I broke Yeah, two weeks ago, you told me you would play soccer with me. And you didn't play soccer with me. You broke your promise. Well, and Jared's like, I don't remember promising. I would never break 
a promise on purpose or even in forgetting. I, it's just not what I would, would do. See, we as with our children, I, I tried to fulfill every single promise that I ever made to my children. But I have a problem, is that I can't control everything. You know, there are things outside of my control. Yes, we're going to go play baseball, but I don't control the weather. I don't control everything that takes place. Therefore, no matter what favor I show to my children, it is not at the same level of favor that God shows me. Because every promise from God is yes and amen. Why? Because he is a sovereign God who totally controls everything. The king even gives him the silver and gold. Now notice this too. Don't misread this, and it's easy to do. You may think that Artaxerxes has suddenly become a believer if you read this passage. You might think, oh, this is the letter from the king. And he's saying, moreover, you're to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Now, here's the problem with this statement, um, just to let you know. It's that God has given favor to Ezra. Therefore, the king is giving him favor. It looks like he's declaring that God is God. But the problem is Artaxerxes could have said, Go to the Samaritans and the God who's in Samaria, or the God who's here, or the God that's there. His belief, as you'll see it played out even, is I don't want to antagonize. Why would I want to antagonize the God of that land? I, I don't want him to be angry with me or my sons. Therefore, therefore, I'm going to get a little silver and gold. It's not going to hurt me that much. Letting these people go back and rebuild their temple. So, just politically, and I'm running out of time, but Egypt has rebelled against the Medes and the Persians. And Israel is between Babylon and Egypt. So he's trying to kind of like say, this will be a good buffer. He's making a strategic political move in order to send the people back, rebuild the temple, Hopefully the God of that land won't be mad at me. Things will stay peaceful and Egypt will stay over there until I can defeat him. It'll provide a way for me to get from here to there. Nonetheless, however that favor is walked out, it is, it is all being played, so to speak, by the hand of God. They're, they're in captivity. They're in exile because God not only allowed it, he caused it. It's a little tough for our prosperity theologies. That God at times will use even our enemies to drive us back to him. We want to walk out the favor of God. Because too often we see favor as something we deserve. We earned it. It's mine. Mine. Uh, I used to take my kids to, don't tell their mom, I used to take my kids to McDonald's at times. We'd have French fries. I'd buy them fries, and then, but I wouldn't buy myself fries because I'm, you know, frugal. Um, so, but I'd buy them fries, and then I'd reach over to take a fry, and they'd say, hey, 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 don't eat my fries. And I want to say, you ungrateful wretch. You doth not buy these fries. I purchaseth them. 
with my money. You should be grateful to haveth these fries. It, but we do the exact same thing to God. We, we look at our stuff and say, mine, mine, mine. Rather than saying, thank you, God, for what you've given. This is your car. This is your house. This is your stuff that you've allowed me to use for this period of time. May I walk it out in favor with you. Should be our response. To respond all the time with gratitude. We stay in the position of being grateful before God because we recognize that all things are blessed and come from him. Says in answer, the last two verses of this chapter, Ezra says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. Notice how the pronouns change in these two verses. They go from he to I. Where Ezra is recognizing personally and writing personally that it is God at work. And I am so grateful. He knows that the favor that he has is because of what God has done. God has given him favor because the hand of God is on him. He knows where his favor comes from. I think that's what gratitude, by the way, does for us. When we really walk out gratitude and gratefulness, it's a recognition that this is God doing it. It's not me. Why is an ingrate one of life's ugliest creatures? Because they're so inside themselves and think everything they have has been deserved or comes from their hard work. But a person who walks in gratitude, be thankful always. In all circumstances, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why? Being grateful recognizes it comes from him. There's a story about a hot and cold spring in a South American country where the, the waters come together. It's almost boiling hot on one side and it's cold on the other. And uh, the women from the surrounding area would come down and they would do their laundry, washing it in the hot, rinsing it in the cold. One time the tourist goes and he's saying to his guide, wow, they must be really grateful for this stream that Mother Nature has provided where they get hot and cold. And his guide says, no, senor. They gripe because she does not provide soap. That's our life. Too often we look at the lack rather than the provision. And being ungrateful is a constant look at what we lack. Robert Louis Stevenson said this, The man who has forgotten to be thankful has fallen asleep in life. Here's my call for us today, and I think it's a great lesson from the book of Ezra. 
It is these things. Accept the mission that he's got for us. Pray. Seek it out. Then walk out the favor that he's going to... I am so convinced of this. I am so convinced, and I hope you will be too, that, that God does not call you to do something without anointing you in some way to carry it out. He doesn't. I believe the Bible is true over and over again and speaks into this, where Jesus even says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Go and make disciples. He anoints, he infills, he empowers, he commissions. He's called you to a mission. He'll favor. At some point, now again, I don't want to preach this sermon all over again. But favor may look different than you think it is. Walk out whatever God provides for you in terms of favor to accomplish the mission that he's got. And, in, and instead of just always looking at what you're lacking, be grateful for what he's bestowed on your life. Because when it ultimately comes down to it, Jesus says, without me, you can't do anything. Anything of consequence will be done only through the power and presence of Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit who fills and anoints and empowers our lives. Lord, we pray this morning that we will take this moment in time to accept what you've called us to do to walk in your favor and your presence, and to respond always in gratitude before you. Lord, I thank you for this people in this place, praying that you would direct them. I, I pray that today that people will, their, their minds will be opened to receive the mission that you have for their lives, the call that you have on them to accomplish what you've destined for them to be and to do. Lord, let your hand, let your presence fall on this place. Lord, fill us up afresh and anew to accomplish what you called us to do. May we walk it out with hearts that are always grateful. Lord, we pray today, knowing that you are the high king of heaven. You are the one who's gotten the victory that, God, you, our eyes are fixed on you. You are our vision. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.